invite you to take a uh, Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 3. It's on page 984 in the Bibles in the pews, 984. Before I uh, read that, I want to remind you that next Sunday is our special uh, music presentation for the Christmas season uh, and a lunch served by our deacons. What will be different this time is that lunch will be served after uh, there'll be two, well, you can see in the bulletin, after Sunday school uh, at 11 o'clock or just after 11 and then after the second service, too. Many people will attend a church service at Christmas that would not go any other time. So I would really want to ask you that, that you would personally invite and either bring or meet here uh, someone that, that you know that, that doesn't attend church. Well, I'm not talking about grabbing your friends that all go to their churches and have Christmas music and just kind of rove around from one Christmas music thing to another, but someone that that uh, that would benefit from being here, and it, they will come if you invite them, but they won't if you don't. And I will uh, do my best to preach the gospel with the few minutes they give me to preach <laughs> in between the songs. And uh, but that's next Sunday, so I hope that you will uh, take advantage of that and uh, plan to use it as a means of outreach. Colossians chapter 3, Andy and Wyatt and I since September have been kind of team teaching through Colossians. It's been a couple of weeks since we were able to be in this, so uh, I will in a moment give a word of review for the opening 11 verses, but follow with me, if you will, verses 12 and following. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Our Father, these words have been passed down accurately to us, and we need to hear them. You've told us we do not live by bread alone. We not only need physical sustenance, we need spiritual. So we pray that you would feed our, our needy souls now from your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes of our service is going to be the ordination and installation of officers. So uh, let's, before we come to that point in the service, though, let's look at verses 12, primarily verses 12 and 13. Uh, just quick, quick review. The Apostle Paul's in a Roman jail. He's writing to people he'd never met in the city of Colossae. He had never gone there to preach. He'd never planted that church. A man named Epaphras had come to the city of Ephesus, some 70 miles away. Uh, apparently had been converted under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Took that message back to his city of Colossae. And people came to Christ and a church was planted. Now some years have passed. They are being threatened with false teaching as were many of the early churches and still happens today. And so Paul writes a letter. Typical of his letters, he spends the first part. He didn't put chapters and verses. Those came along a lot later. But about the first half deals with the doctrine, the theology, what we're to believe. And he combated the false teaching by stressing who the person of Christ is. 
and what's true about Jesus. He stressed the truth so that they would be able to recognize error. Now in the latter part, which is chapters 3 and 4, he makes the practical application of a lot of that doctrine. He's talking about how we are changed as believers, as those who believe in Christ as our Redeemer. How should our lives be different? What should they look like? Uh, And so he's dealing with that here. Two, three Sundays ago, we dealt with the opening verses, and it tells us to to put to death certain things. It gives a whole list starting in verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, and anger, and wrath, and malice, and so forth. These are things we are to mortify, not in our power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 12 and following what we start today, he's going to talk about what we should do, uh, what we should put on. So we put off these things like filthy garments, and we put on these new clothes, uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and so forth. So verse 12 is telling us how should we live. And always he begins with knowing who you are rather than what you are to do. So verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, as God's chosen ones. Now why did he put that there? The reason is, according to the Bible, none of us here, and, or, or anywhere for that matter, becomes a Christian solely by our own choice. Uh, rather, we have been chosen by God, and this is called divine election. And it's clearly taught in the scriptures. We see it, Romans, Ephesians, like Ephesians chapter 1 says that God chose, in, chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says, We give thanks to God for you, brothers, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Now let me give you the technical description of the doctrine of election. And you may think, what difference does it make? It makes a world of difference. Now let me tell you the context before I give you the, the uh, technical definition. Uh, within the past two weeks, I was with a friend. You wouldn't know him. And he, uh, he was telling me, he's a guy that lives here in Macon. He's involved. Uh, he was telling me about a friend of his whose son recently was sexually abused, a young son. And he was going on and on about how angry he is about this. And he's heartbroken for his friend. And he said, what do I say to him? Do I just go up and say, well, God was there the whole time. And he noticed I wasn't saying anything. I was just listening. And he said, what would you say to him? I said, frankly, I probably wouldn't say anything except that I love him and I'll be praying for him and I try to be present. But I would not try to explain this from a theological standpoint. Now, I said, I can recommend a book by Dan Allender called The Wounded Heart that deals with sexual abuse, but I doubt if somebody's willing to read that at this early in the stage right now. But I said... I would talk about the sovereignty of God to the extent that we could talk about that. And he talked like that would be threatening. That would make the problem worse. I said, well, there's a time and a place to say something, and probably right now is not the time to say anything. But when the time comes, you need to remember, whenever the Bible talks about God's sovereignty and things like election, it's in the context of suffering. It's not just a theological discussion, a hypothetical debate. Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, 
when we read these passages, they were written to believers who were going through difficult times, be it external persecution, be it hard circumstances, because when we go through things like that, don't you and I say, where is God? Is he for me or is he against me? And so Paul says here, chosen one. So here's what the doctrine of election says. This is the formal theological definition or description of it. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. Now here's where it gets hard. These and these only he purposed to save. God could have chosen to save all people, or he could have purposed to save none, but he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners under salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but his choice was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. So election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that we would do, but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. Now, I say this because some of us were taught when we were young, if we grew up in a church, if we were taken to church or forced to go to church like I was by my mother, some of us heard people say, well, election, oh yeah, I believe that, that back before the creation of the world, God looked down the tube of time and he saw who would choose him and based on what he saw, he elected them to eternal life. Right, that makes sense. Don't, don't raise your hand, but I, I, without question, I'm sure some of us have been taught that and believe it. That's not what this is saying. That It is saying that God's choice was unconditional. It wasn't based upon a condition that, oh, I see that, that old Joe down there in 2014, he's going to uh, respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. Now, based on what I see, my foreknowledge, I'll elect him. No, this is that God saw and chose unconditionally. Now, one reason I have, and you probably have a very difficult time beginning to wrap our brains around this, is because I don't know of anything else in life, a choice that's unconditional. Did you marry your spouse, those that are married? Did you marry unconditionally? Don't lie now, we dealt with that two weeks ago in the first part of the chapter, but... No, there's all sorts of conditions. We can talk about unconditional love between us all we want, but it's we wish it was so, don't we? But there's conditions of, of, of appearance and, and age and personality and, and background and education and family and culture and our choices of what, what we do from day to day, uh, how you spend money, whether you spend or save or what uh, course you take in, in, in college or, or in high school or whether you try out for an athletic team. or It's all conditional. It's all conditional. We have reasons why we make these choices, hopefully. Hopefully they're good reasons. Sometimes they're bad reasons, and we regret them later. But this is saying that it was completely unconditional. It was motivated by God's love, but it was not based on anything that he saw in you or me. Now, here's the golden chain from Romans 8 that speaks of this. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. When John Blanchard from England preached here years ago, I've always liked the way that he takes this passage and he expresses it in a very clear way by working himself backwards. And I wrote down what he said. It was something like this. If you should ask me how it is possible that I should stand glorified with my Lord, the answer is that I am justified. If you should ask me how it is possible that I should be justified, I would answer that I was called. And if you ask me why I should be called, the answer is that I was predestined. And if you should ask me why I was predestined, the answer is he loved me. And if you should ask me why he loved me, I have no answer. My words give way to worship. And that's our, that should be our response to this, humility, the doing away of all pride, the comfort. So rather than being viewing the unconditional election as a fatalistic, harsh doctrine, we see it as based on God's incomprehensible love for his elect. And so Ephesians 1 says, In love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So it provides motivation. You say motivation for what? Well, prayer, evangelism, many things, but especially for what he's going to deal with in this paragraph, the putting on of or clothing ourselves with these attributes. So we put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth uh, that we dealt with in the opening verses 5 and following. And then now he says we're to put on compassion, compassionate hearts like Christ, uh, kindness. The, it's the opposite of being harsh. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each word. I mean, you kind of see where they're going. Humility. Humility is not the downgrading of yourself or being self-effacing, but, but knowing who you are and the source of your strength. Jesus was humble. He was not proud. He was not arrogant. Meekness, we're to put that on. That's having self-control, gentleness under uh, strength, uh, harnessed, patience. We're to be long-tempered rather than short-tempered with, with others. Now, this is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. So we put these things on toward other people. Now, let me just mention this. If you are hearing this like, well, I just need to try harder. This week, man, I just got to put on compassion. I got to really work hard at kindness and humility and throw in some gentleness on that too it's putting it on but it's in the power of christ who is the only person to ever model this christ and so through christ being in you when you've received him that brings the change if you hear this that i've just got to try harder i've just got to more effort pull myself up by my bootstraps and and show everybody that i'm really a christian you're not seeing this right he wants us to know who we are, chosen, holy, and beloved, and as a result, we will put off certain things and put on godliness. Now, just a word to those that may have family members, children, parents, extended family, and they aren't believers. And you desire, or maybe you have, you try to expect of them Christian behavior. And so you're always saying, why aren't you compassionate? Why aren't you kind? Why aren't you humble? Why aren't you doing these things? 
for the same reason you didn't before you were a believer. You could not. This is only done through the power of the Holy Spirit within. Don't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. Now, is that an excuse just to say, well, throw all law to the... No, not that at all. But to hold someone to a standard that they do not have the power to meet it is um, it's in error. And so we pray for changed hearts and to re, that results in, in these things. In the last few moments, I, I want to move ahead. So how do we know then? How can you, there's no detector. I don't have some kind of beeper that goes off, says, well, I look, how am I doing in the compassion scale or <laughs> kindness or humility or gentleness or patience? Here's how we know whether we're putting those on. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. The way we display Christ's likeness is in community with other believers. And when we're in community with other believers, we're going to sin against one another. Why would he stress bearing with one another if we're not going literally it means rub <laughs> the friction to bear is because you're being rubbed the wrong way. So there's no question there will be conflict in the church. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. The question is how we deal with it. It should be a mutually forgiving fellowship. So in community with one another, we learn and we display compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience as we put these things on. Then he says, if someone has sinned against you, you're to forgive them. How? To the very degree that God has forgiven you. I, I want to make a few comments about forgiveness. And I was reading some, some notes on Colossians earlier this week by Sam Storms, and I, he had some, he, he prodded a lot of thoughts in my head that I, I, I thought, hopefully, they helped me and I hope it will help you. Here are some myths or lies about forgiveness, okay? When someone says, well, you should forgive and forget. Well, the truth is that forgiving is not mean forgetting. And you say, wait a minute. Doesn't Jeremiah 31, 34 say, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more? I've even heard that taught years ago where the Bible teacher said, that means if you confess your sin to God and then the next day you confess it again, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember that. It is not in my memory anymore. Well, that is not theologically correct. God is omniscient. God knows all things. His knowledge is full. What Jeremiah was doing, the prophet Jeremiah, when that verse was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's using a word picture. He's using a word picture to say that God does not hold us liable for our sins. He does not hold them against us when we've been forgiven. He has canceled the debt and will never demand payment for it. So he knows all things. So when Jeremiah says, your sins I will remember no more, he doesn't mean that it's actually forgotten. It's more like this. Let's say you are my good friend and we're walking somewhere and we, you accidentally turn and your elbow catches me in the eye. Bam! Oh! 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 You know, and I, it hurts. And you go, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, it was an accident. I didn't mean to do that. And I say, I know you didn't mean to do it. It's all right. 
but it still hurts, and maybe I'll have a black eye for a week. Have I, and when I say to you, what will I say to you? Forget it. Meaning, okay, don't say anything else about it. I don't hold this against you. Just let it go. Do I really think he's going to totally forget it as though it never happened? No, but I'm saying it's fine. It's fine. Just forget it. And I've forgiven him. I'm not holding this against him, but I'll remember it and I'll look at it in the mirror each day. So to say forgive and forget, I think it's a myth. And if you, if you think you haven't forgiven someone only because you remember what they did to you, that's not necessarily lack of forgiveness. I hope you feel better right now. I'm not going to ask if you do, but second, it's psychologically impossible to forgive and forget. I mean, if I were to, as soon as you make up your mind to forget something, what happens? You're going to remember it. If you say, I'm going to forget that, I'm going to forget it. No, you'll forget the things you try to remember, <laughs> but you'll remember the things you intentionally try to forget. The second uh, myth about forgiveness is that uh, forgiving someone does not necessarily mean you no longer feel the pain of the offense. Maybe the scar will be there the rest of your life. And you, and you could have said, Lord, I have forgiven that person. They owe me nothing. I, I, I want to just wipe that slate clean. And yet the scar may be there. The fact that the scar is there does not mean that you haven't forgiven them. Third, forgiving someone who has sinned against you does not mean that you stop longing for justice. We should long for justice. I had a... I was talking with a person one day, and they really came down hard on me because I said I believed in hell, that the Bible teaches it. I said, I don't believe in hell, as though that's some kind of loving thing. I said, don't you want justice in the world? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, most people will never be brought to justice that violate other people and murder people and, and what we see and abuse people. And, and I said, they'll, they'll die, and they'll never have gone to trial. But by what you say, they'll never be justice. So what you want is a world where there is no justice. And they said, no, that's not why. I said, that's exactly what you're saying. And I said, that's one of the reasons I, I believe in hell. The Bible teaches it, but also there will be justice. So God doesn't say there'll be no justice. He just says, let me carry it out. It's not up to me to gain revenge or for you to gain revenge because you don't know, you don't know all the facts. But God says there will come a day of vengeance, but he will be the one that will carry that out. Last thing I'd say about that, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. And you can forgive a person or you can be forgiven and maybe reconciliation will happen and maybe it won't. In some cases, maybe the friendship is just lost. And, and there's forgiveness, but it's like you can't start over. And a lot, the reason I'm telling you this, I feel some of us think we've not forgiven when we have. And because we think it's supposed to be total reconciliation, uh, total forgetting, no, no pain, and so forth. Not so. Okay. Ten minutes of material in the next two minutes. Some truths about forgiveness. God has absorbed us. He, got, he forgave us in Christ by absorbing in himself the destruction and painful consequences of our sin. Forgiving others as God has forgiven us, which he tells us to do, means we resolve 
to give up our right to revenge and to do good to them rather than evil. God forgave us in Christ by reconciling us to himself, by restoring that relationship that our sin had shattered. And so that's the standard. We're to forgive others as we are forgiven. The clearest parable Jesus told about this was the man who owed uh, a very wealthy man a, a load of money, like, like a million dollars. And the man forgave him. The, 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 the wealthy person forgave him the debt. And then if you remember the story, he goes out, he finds somebody that owes him like $100. And what does he do to him? Grabs him by the neck and says, I want that money, and if you don't have it, you're going into debtor's prison. Shows no mercy after he had been shown great mercy. If you read the rest of the story, the wealthy man hears about it, he comes back, and he gets this guy, you know, for the way he treated the other one. Uh, the point is, we, as I, when someone does something wrong to me, I should be thinking, look at the... The, the countless pages of sins I commit against God. And he's forgiven me. How can I hold this against this brother or this sister who's done one thing, one thing to me, when I've got millions of sins against God that he's forgiven? That's, that's what he's telling us to do, is to focus on how we've been forgiven and then seek that for the other person. Last of all, though I've never seen it, I've only been to New York City to go through the airport, but I've read that there's a cemetery outside of New York City, and in that cemetery, among the graves, is one particular headstone, and it's got one word on it, forgiven. There is no name. There's no date of birth. There's no date of death. There's no artwork uh, on the headstone. There's no eulogy. Just that one word, forgiven. Are you? Let's pray together. Father, our only hope of forgiveness is the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ, who is a substitute to take away the sin of the world. We pray that today our trust would be in him and him only, and uh, we thank you uh, that you promised us in eternity with you. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we come to the time now, as I mentioned to you, where we're going to install and ordain a new classes. You see their names there for the session of the diaconate. I'll ask all those men.